This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5 coming at you once again a little bit later on in the week. We're working on it, my friends. I'm trying to pull the episodes back to Wednesdays. I'm wrangling them as we speak, but we're going week to week a little bit here, so it's going to be tight as we roll on through February and into March, but I promise we're going to be rolling out some really engaging episodes of BOA Audio for you in the weeks and months to come. And, of course, this week is no exception. Our guest is Christopher Knowles, author of Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes. And there's quite a backstory to this episode, so let me sort of give you a little bit of info on how this all came about and what a generous and cool guy Christopher Knowles really is. This is one edition of BOA Audio that is really purely driven by the BOA Audio listeners because after we concluded the Bruce Rux trilogy last year, somebody wrote in asking for an Esoterica and Comics edition of BOA Audio, and I had no idea where to look for such a guest. I put the call out at the end of a later edition of BOA Audio, and I was just overwhelmed by a deluge of emails from folks who kept saying the same name, Christopher Knowles, Christopher Knowles, Christopher Knowles. And ironically enough, I had been exchanging emails with Christopher Knowles himself during that whole period because we had become friends via the Bruce Rocks interview. So that's another cool element to this interview, that Christopher Knowles is a BOA Audio listener, which is always kind of fun and weird a little bit to interview people who are regular listeners of the show. I hope they don't get completely freaked out by the glimpse behind the curtain. And Christopher Knowles had a really good glimpse behind the curtain because we originally taped this interview on the day of the infamous Coca-Cola spill all over my audio recording equipment. I spilled the Coke all over the equipment at like 10 a.m. I think we had the interview scheduled for 2 p.m., so I had to run out to the mall and buy a new digital audio recorder and... Then we taped the interview, and I was just completely bewildered by the whole experience. I liken it almost to getting into some kind of car accident and then having to go to work later on in the day. I was just traumatized for a while there. So we taped that interview, went three hours, but to be honest with you, I just did not bring my A-game to that interview. So a little bit later on down the line, maybe a few days later, Christopher emailed me. He already knew the circumstances leading up to our interview. And he said, hey, you know, you want to do it again? You want to give it another shot? So we sat down and taped another three-hour interview, which is what you're going to be hearing the first half of here this week on BOA Audio. So I went on a long story rant here, but I want to give huge props and thanks to Christopher Knowles. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, hey, dude, 
we just taped a three-hour interview. It's got to be good enough. But he knew that we could have done better, and he sat down with us. I brought my A-game. He was ready to rock and roll, and we really put together quite a lengthy and detailed conversation here. Not only about our gods wear spandex, but what you're going to hear next week, talking about his critically acclaimed blog, The Secret Sun. I'll kind of give you more of a preview about that at the end of the program. Let me preview the first half of this conversation right now. We're going to be delving into his book, Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes, and looking at a number of elements along those lines. We're going to cover the evolution of comic books and superheroes, the enormous impact of the book, Brill, The Power of the Coming Race, how Superman ushered in a new era of superhero, the magical battle of Britain, Batman as a Gollum figure, and Gollum figures in comics, the really strange fellow who created Wonder Woman, comic book titans Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, and Alan Moore, the comics code, and the big changes of the 1980s and 1990s in the comics industry and the way the stories played out, plus, of course, tons and tons more. It is really a fascinating conversation here, very entertaining, and for those of us who are pop culture junkies, it is really sort of a feast for the ears as we delve into a whole bunch of different pop culture icons like Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, and a whole bunch more, as well as contemporary films such as Watchmen, Avatar, and the Twilight series. It really is one of the most requested and anticipated editions of BOA Audio in quite some time. The wildly popular Christopher Knowles has arrived on the program, my friends. Sit back, relax, and get ready to have your mind blown. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Christopher Knowles, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Christopher Knowles is the author of the Eagle Award-winning book, Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes, and the critically acclaimed Clash City Showdown, The Music, Meaning, and Legacy of the Clash, as well as co-author of The Complete X-Files, behind the series The Myths and the Movies. He was an associate editor and columnist for the five-time Eisner Award-winning comic book artist magazine, as well as a writer and reviewer for the UK magazine Classic Rock. Knowles wrote the definitive history of the co-classic film Lucifer Rising for Classic Rock, which featured exclusive interviews with Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, director Kenneth Anger, and a Manson family member Bobby Busolil. The Lucifer Rising cover story earned Classic Rock its best-selling issue to date. Knowles has explained the ongoing collision between myth, ancient symbolism, and modern culture on several radio shows and podcasts, and has appeared in the documentaries Wonder Woman, Daughter of Myth, The Man, The Myth, Superman, and Wendy O. Williams and the Plasmatics. He was invited to lecture on science fiction, mysticism, and mythology at the legendary Esalen Institute at Big Sur, California in 2008 and 2009, and he blogs daily on the Secret Sun, and you can find that at secretsun.blogspot.com. Hugely popular blog, The Secret Sun. We're going to talk about that in part two. So dive on over to The Secret Sun to get a little background on some of the stuff you'll be hearing later on in this marathon conversation. Having said all that, let's get down to business, my friends. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on January 30th, 2010. Christopher Knowles, talking about the occult and esoteric underpinnings 
of comic books and superheroes on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. Very, very excited about this week's guest. He is the author of the really fascinating and outstanding book, Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes. And it's a really enjoyable, fast read, very informative book about the esoteric and occult influences that can be found uh, in comic books. And, uh, you know, sort of also overlaying all that, you know, the evolution of comic books here in America as uh, part of uh, pop culture. He's also the co-author of the Complete X-Files book, and that's a really cool book. And we're not going to get a chance to talk about that probably tonight, but definitely folks should check that out because it's really cool and well done and uh, really nicely packaged. I mean, I I really can't put that over enough. Uh, As I was leaping through it, I was just like, this thing's amazing. Um, And and what a lot of people probably know him for right now is uh, the really popular blog, The Secret Sun. You can find that at secretsun.blogspot.com. It is really one of the breakout new blogs here uh, over the past year and a half, two years or so. And uh, lately, it seems like everybody's talking about The Secret Sun. So I'm excited to have him here on the program. And ironically enough, uh, last year we put out the call for a comic book guest, sort of in the same vein as Bruce Rucks, the very popular Bruce Rucks interview that we did. And about probably 10 people or so wrote in suggesting our guest. So they're getting their wish here, and uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. He is, of course, the esteemed Christopher Knowles. Christopher, welcome to BOA Audio. Thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be here. It's great to be here, definitely. To kick things off, let's let's start, you know, with the standard bio background. How did you get interested in the esoteric, and, you know, how did that end up merging with your interest in comic books? I, I think the two sort of go hand in hand. I, I grew up reading comic books at a time when there was all these crazy hippie freaks writing the stories that were putting all this weird occult stuff and psychedelic stuff and drug stuff and cosmic stories. I mean, all these crazy stories. It was a real golden age for high weirdness in comics in the 70s. I mean, you could buy a comic and and in the middle would be a a Robert Anton Wilson excerpt. So a lot of UFOs, ancient astronauts. I mean, you name it. Somebody uh, was doing a comic book on it in the 70s. I mean, seriously, it was just a crazy time to be reading. And it was when it was everything was really fresh and new. I mean, so things have sort of mutated and been incorporated into, you know, the basic storylines and stuff. But this was a time when you went from very corny kind of sci-fi stories in the 50s and 60s to just whacked out esoterica in comics. And, you know, really that's sort of what I cut my teeth on. And I eventually sort of branched out into esoteric topics and reading about you know, the usual Mysteries of the Unknown, that old Reader's Digest uh, book, and all the stuff that was going around in the 70s. There was so much of it around and just sort of absorbed that, and then just sort of came full circle when I, ra- uh, when I wrote Our Gods Were Spandex, you know, to sort of show people, you know, the roots of uh, basically modern occultism and um, esoterica, high weirdness, all these kind of topics sort of come from the same roots, split off in different branches, I guess. Yeah. Uh, the comic books did, and the, uh, the superheroes did, starting in the uh, end of the late 19th century. Yeah, yeah. And what I really like about the book, too, is it not only traces the evolution of uh, comic books, but also sort of traces, like, the evolution of Esoterica, which I really kind of enjoyed, because it, it wasn't super 
technical. It was really a pretty easy read. Sometimes you get these books that trace history of stuff, and you're like, oh, God, you know, this is slow moving. But this was like very fast-paced stuff and, and really informative, too, even though I've been studying the esoteric for quite some time. Well, basically, the, the premise of the book is that when people feel threatened by technology and social change, there's always a move towards mysticism, the occult, uh, magic, religion, all these sort of topics. And what you saw in the mid-19th century is that there was these tremendous upheavals in Europe from the Industrial Revolution. Everybody really believed that they were going to be replaced by machines, that there was to become this sort of steampunk hell of a world, you know. <laughs> and people were being uprooted from their, their you know, the world and the life that their ancestors had been living for thousands of years. I mean, people were being pulled away from the farms and the countryside, you know, brought you know, the dark satanic mills, as they were called, these uh, giant factories uh, spewing out pollution, and, and there was just all sorts of social ills from that. And really what you saw as a re reaction to that was sort of this move towards mysticism, uh, you know, because the church had no answer to this, because the church has always been bought off by the by the establishment. So you sort of saw this alternative religious movement. And uh, the way that developed is that it sort of developed into this whole idea of a, of a new human being, the new man that would survive the challenges of the Industrial Revolution. And, and there was a very strong interplay between what we were seeing in pop culture and also what we were seeing in a lot of these sort of occult groups, theosophy, spiritualism, all these sort of groups that were popping up. Freemasonry was very popular, Mormonism, Christian science, all these things were all sort of happening all at the same time. But the, the the real catalyst behind this was just this incredible social upheaval and disruption, and, and in very, very many ways, very similar to what we're seeing now. Yeah, interesting. So let's sort of like dive into the superhuman, I guess you could say, uh, and where this whole idea kind of came from. And, and uh, you were telling me that we can actually kind of trace the first superhuman story back to somebody uh, named Edward Bulwer-Lytton. So uh, talk about him and uh, his book. He's the Vril guy, right? Yes, Vril, the coming race. Very interesting character, Edward Bower Lighton. Um, he had been Viceroy of India. He was a uh, Freemason. He was a Rosicrucian. And he was also a very, very popular novelist, probably one of the most popular genre novelists of the time. Uh, his big breakthrough book was a book called Zanoni, which was a uh, sort of a Rosicrucian manifesto slash narrative. Uh, there, he had claimed that he had found this uh, manuscript that was the confessions of this Rosicrucian uh, from days gone by. And then he also wrote a, a very popular book uh, that's whose popularity really existed into this century is a book called The Last Days of Pompeii. And there were a lot of sort of occult and magical elements in that. Um, but Vril was really his big breakthrough. And it was you know tied into this whole hollow earth theory that we saw a lot of uh, in theosophy and in the 19th century in some of these occult groups, this idea that there was this underground world. You know, you can take a sort of very psychological union approach to that this is some sort of metaphor, but, you know, a lot of people sort of literalize this. So he took, he took the, uh, these ideas of the hollow earth, and he wrote this book called Vril, and it was about this race, you know, very similar in a lot of ways to Avatar. It was this, you know, these very tall beings. They lived in this, you know, pastoral paradise underground this soldier 
actually maybe an explorer, but this uh, guy gets lost in these caves and he comes across this, this world of these people. And the book is really, you know, it's not the most fascinating book you'll ever read. It's just sort of him describing the city of these people and how they behave and how they live and stuff. But it's also something that a lot of people sort of overlook is that it was written as sort of a critique of uh, social Darwinism, of uh, socialism, you know, sort of a lot of the ideas that sort of it evolved into this idea of like a perfected human being. It was, it was meant to be a critique of because uh, Bulwer Lighton sort of saw these people almost as like, um, you know, they'd become human robots. And there's a very, you know, there's a cautionary uh, street to it. At the end, there's this threat that they are going to one day rise up, come to the surface and take over the planet because they had been driven underground. But this whole idea just really caught fire. Uh, back in these days, you know, the 19th century, during all this upheaval, it's just this whole idea of the superhuman race that was hidden away from sight, you know, human potential, all these sort of things just coalesced, and uh, this book became just a runaway bestseller. And actually, one of the people who read it was Madame Blavatsky, and she would sort of steal a lot of the ideas from not only from Vril, but from Bo Lighton's other books. Uh, when she started working up Theosophy and uh, Isis Unveiled and, and, you know, the Secret Doctrine and all these sort of things. So it's very interesting to see that basically a science fiction novel about superhumans was very much a catalyst to Theosophy, which was really the big kahuna of this whole mystical, occult, New Age, proto-New Age world of the uh, 19th century. Yeah, I heard Blavatsky lifted a lot of people's eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. Because <laughs> they didn't have the internet back then, so she just pretty much, like, when anything she heard, went into her stuff, so. Well, that was a big problem back then, you know, that was how copyright law came about, because people were just, you know, Charles Dickens would publish a book in England, and somebody would just reprint it in America. You know, and the same thing happened with the early pulps, the early sci-fi stuff. You know, because then you had people like Jules Verne, who's really sort of the, the make-or-break character with sci-fi. And then also, you also have H.G. Uh, Wells, who writes, you know, the, the first great alien invasion novel, War of the Worlds, you know, just recently made into a film. Yeah. And a lot of this was critique of what was going on. I mean, Wells was critiquing the British invasion and colonization of India and the third world and Asia, you know, that the fact that the British were using their advantage of mechanized weaponry to take over these other countries and what would happen if in turn, you know, he, I guess they were Martians in the novel, you know, the Martians who would have even more advanced weaponry would come and take over us. So it's very interesting that this whole nexus really, I mean, it's still reverberating to this day. I mean, Avatar in a lot of ways, ties directly back to this because Avatar is based on John Carter, Warlord of Mars, which was um, a series of books written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who also invented uh, Tarzan. And the same ideas of you know, traveling to a, a distant world and sort of becoming this warrior that we see in Avatar from the John Carter stories. But his ideas uh, for these stories came, in turn, from Blavatsky. So it's, it's this never-ending cycle and recycling. Yeah, yeah, that's the interesting part that you sort of explain in the book is how this esoteric undercurrent, I guess you could say, for lack of a better term, you know, sort of melds in with the sci-fi writers and stuff. And then 
finds his way into fiction, and, and, you know, then that informs esoteric people, and it's it's really, like you said, it's sort of like this self-perpetuating thing. Well, it's interesting, too, with Rill, because Rill became so popular that there was a, a, a popular, like, broth drink in, in, in England called Bovril. <laughs> yeah, right? What's in it? Uh, it was a, it was beef broth. Weird. Yes. And also, later on, we heard rumors, uh, the sort of apocryphal rumors of, of real society, that this is where the Nazis came from, that they, the core of the Nazi party came from this real society. And this was a sort of a thesis that was put forward by a, a German rocket scientist named Willy Ley, who was also part of the whole science fiction circle in L.A. that included people like Jack Parsons. So, you know, again, and L. Ron Hubbard. So, again, this whole nexus, uh, it manifests itself in fiction, it manifests itself in, like, New Age and spirituality and stuff, and then it also manifests itself in politics. So, you know, it's a very complex constellation. Absolutely. I still haven't seen Avatar yet, so don't spoil it for me. Oh, okay. Yeah, you get to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I, I, right after we taped the original interview, I had Peter Robbins on, and he just started talking about Avatar 2, and it was like, oh, no, i got to have to see this movie, because every interview I do now, <laughs> every interview I end up doing now, we end up somehow talking about Avatar, so I'm completely out in the dark on this. Well, you know, what's really funny is that my daughter's friend's father was going to take you know, his daughter and my daughter to see Avatar. But the 9.30 showing, 9.30 a.m. showing was sold out. And, you know, that movie's been out, you know, for... A month almost, probably. Well, much more than a month. Yeah. It's, it's been out for uh, about six weeks now. And a 9.30 a.m. show is selling out. So that movie is obviously hitting a very, very deep chord. It's it's pretty remarkable. I never thought they'd make a movie. Well, you know, you kind of have to figure that all records get broken. But at the same time, I thought it'd be a while before they came out with another movie that broke the Titanic record. But I guess it just broke the record like last week. So, Well, it, it, it's, it's striking a very deep chord because, again, it's this whole idea of transcending humanity, transcending our limitations. I mean, it, it couldn't be more uh, simplified and spelled out for you. It's this, you know, a, a crippled uh, ex-Marine is given a new body and is thrown in this paradise, this world of where everybody's connected directly like a, a computer into into the world itself. It's like they have these little USB hubs on the end of their ponytails. I mean, it's just virtual reality along with this very compelling fantasy. So, I mean, it doesn't really surprise me that uh, it, it's so popular. But again, I mean, all these ideas go all the way back, again, to John Carter even before, I mean, you can see Vril. Vril sort of is, is is all over Avatar, you know. But it's this very deep, you know. What what it is is it's these very deep urges, you know, like wish wish fulfillment. And uh, it's fine, I guess, when it's in pop culture. It gets a little dodgier when it sort of gets into some of these mystical groups and occult groups, and then it gets, like, really dangerous when it gets into politics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, you hit the nail on the head with that. Now, to move it into the comic book realm, now, I'm not a big comic reader myself, but I really enjoyed the book quite a bit. The way that I was able to handle the, all the information was, was really easy, which was good, because, like I said, I don't, I don't know anything about comics. But what I found interesting was, you know, how you detail the evolution of comics and also how 
you know, there's this ebb and flow of popularity in comics that sort of coincide with the national concerns and, and interests of, uh, you know, America, which I thought was really interesting because I've heard that sort of thing about movies before, but I never really knew that comics sort of fell along the same lines. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a mythology. And really the superheroes started up, I mean, you had proto-superheroes in the pulps, and this was before this became a purely visual medium. This was pulp magazines or story magazines. They had illustrations, but it was basically prose. And you had characters like The Shadow. You had characters like Doc Savage. You had characters like The Avenger. I mean, there were a whole host of, of superhero characters that had some kind of costume, but not like the circus performer costumes that you saw with, with Superman. Yeah. You know, there's definitely this evolution, but they were crime fighters. Uh, a lot of them happen to be sort of, you know, they were rich playboys. This is what we see with Batman. But the way this starts to pick up popularity is with the Depression. The Depression really gives the impetus for this. Also for sci-fi. And what sci-fi was really selling was like this world of tomorrow. You know, okay, everything's really terrible right now, and everybody's out of work, and everybody's poor, and just everything's a mess. But don't worry, you know, we're going to transcend all this, and we're going to be flying around in our space cars, and we're going to be living on the moon, and, you know, everything's going to be fantastic. And then what we'll have to worry about is, you know, killer robots from Venus and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so it was like this really powerful escapist fantasy. But also what you had is that during the um, Prohibition, you had the, the, the incredible explosion in organized crime. And even after Prohibition is repealed, I mean, the mobs are just becoming more and more powerful. They, they move from booze into other rackets, and they're really, you know, they even control the newsstands. They, they have a, their fingers in the uh, publishing industry. They have their fingers in Hollywood. I mean, the mob is just all over the place. And what that was affecting people is that people in urban areas could walk into the middle of a gunfight, you know, some street battle between yeah. various gangs and stuff. And, you know, people were being shaken down. I mean, it was just a, v a very tumultuous time. And that's where the superheroes really start to pick up steam. Uh, you know, again, like the Shadow is the, is the biggest, I think, probably of all of these. And he's, a, a, you know, an Avenger. I mean, he fights crime with guns. He doesn't take any prisoners. He's a killer. And it's that sort of gets watered down into Batman. Bat, but Batman is essentially the shadow. It's the same exact character in, in, in almost every single way. And then what we had is that there was this um, a novel called Gladiator, and this is this whole superhuman idea of, cre of engineering a, a superhuman that will be able to survive uh, all this poverty and war and turmoil and crime and everything. This was written by a guy named Philip Wiley, uh, he was a minister's son who sort of lost his faith, but he, he kept on the you know this that whole messianic uh, principle, that messianic idea that he was raised with, and creates the gladiator. But the gladiator has a bad end. I mean, the gladiator is defying God because he's achieving superhuman power, and he he comes to a bad end. But this is the impetus for the super-powered superheroes. And, and this is a new wrinkle. Yeah. That these aren't just, you know, super-athletes, you know, guys who are very well-trained. You know, you had a lot of these um, sort of leftover theosophical ideas. This is the really interesting thing about this, is that the theosophy was really dead by, say, the 20s. But it sort of filtered down into junk culture. It filtered down into... Uh, 
pop occultism things like that yeah. you know and into the superheroes and and all the a lot of the superheroes would like go and study with the swamis and the gurus in the east and develop these incredible mystical powers of hypnotism and all these kind of things to fight crime but the gladiator creates this whole new archetype of the superman and this is where we start to get into the character of superman who's actually created around maybe 1932, several years before he's actually published. And he goes through a lot of different uh, stages and a lot of different mutations until he becomes what we know him as now, which is he's an alien. And this is a whole new, I mean, this is a complete revolution. You go from these uh, mystical, magical powers to pure science fiction. I mean, this is Buck Rogers. This is Flash Gordon in reverse. Uh, in, com in combination with the gladiator. So there's a big shift here that I think people need to pay more attention to, that you go from this uh, occultism, mysticism, the proto-New Age, the, the various uh, Christian offshoots in the 19th century, you know, you still had some Kabbalah around as well, to now it's about space, it's about aliens, it's about fringe science. It's, it's, a, it's a totally different shift in consciousness and this is going to take over the comics uh, later on in the 50s. What do you ascribe to that shift? I think it, it had to do with that. Look at, I mean, from, say, Rome, the period, you know, the glory days of ancient Rome, to maybe the 17th or 18th centuries, technology was static. I mean, you had people working the farms pretty much the same way they had for thousands of years, by hand, with oxen. You know, you had maybe running water during the, the Roman days, and then you sort of, we lost that. But as the uh, 18th century starts to pick up steam, we're having technology, we have indoor plumbing, we have antibiotics uh, early in the 20th century. You know, all science begins to take over. And the focus can no longer be on magic and the supernatural because people aren't, they don't really believe in that anymore. They, they, they've stopped believing in, uh, you know, the occult and, yeah. and the supernatural. So they start thinking about science fiction. They start thinking about aliens. They start thinking about space. And if you look at the pulps, the sci-fi pulps, I mean, so many of the ideas that are still in circulation in science fiction today, you know, you can trace their roots directly back to that. But again, it's this major shift that's embodied by Superman from, and let me bring this up too, because I put this in the book and I didn't get enough space to sort of explore this, but Superman has a direct precedent created by the same guys. Superman was originally this character named Dr. Occult, okay. and then he became Dr. Mystic, and he starts off as the classic um, occult detective, you know, wearing a trench coat, Dr. Occult, and then he, he, he shifts, he changes until he's wearing, uh, you know, the underpants and a, and a cape, in the boots, and he's flying around, and all this sort of stuff. I mean, this is the direct predecessor created by Siegel and Schuster of Superman, but he's a magical character. And then all of a sudden, there's this change again to the alien, to the extraterrestrial, to the, you know the pseudoscientific, to the super scientific. One of the issues that you mentioned in the book that I thought was interesting because I had never really thought about it until uh, I read it in the book was just that some critics see the idea of superheroes as like this potential fascist thing. But then, like I said, I hadn't really thought about it till I looked at it again, you know, and gave it a second thought. And then it was like, yeah, it does kind of make sense because 
that ties back into the whole Nazism thing, you know, about there being supermen and them being, you know, sort of like a cut above the the average man, if you will. So, um, you know, talk a little bit about that that social criticism or whatever uh, of of superheroes as potentially, you know, examples of, of fascism. Well, you know, we have Superman in America, but the Nazis also have the Ubermensch. You know, it's the same word. I mean, super means over or above, you know. Yeah. And Uber does as well. I mean, it's the same, it's the same word. And this is sort of a permutation back from Nietzsche. You know, he preaches the Superman, the new man who's uh, unbound by morality and and weakness and all these sort of things. I mean, this very, you know, classically Nietzschean ideas of of uh, you know these stoic figures that are, are above good and evil. Um, you know, and that sort of took two paths. I mean, Nietzsche was uh, fairly obscure in his time, but was very influential among, you know, a certain group of people. And there were people involved in the occult and the, uh, the you know, the mystical realm that were fans of his. And one of these people is, is Aleister Crowley. And Crowley sort of takes that whole Nietzschean idea an ideal, and, he, and this is where he gets the whole Aeon of Horus that we see in the Book of the Law. Mm-hmm. And this is this merciless Superman who it will just will crush the weak uh, and, and purify the world, and, and this is what the Nazis also believed in. Now, the thing is, is that there are two different paths here uh, that sort of come from the same root, but take very sharp, divergent routes. Uh, we have Superman, the classic Superman, who is the defender of the weak, stands for truth and liberty and justice and all these sort of things. Uh, he's a, he's an avenger. He's going to he's a protector. He's going to protect us. And then we have you know these these more darker Nazi permutations of this, which is all about you know the weak are dragging the rest of the race down. You know they need to be purified. They need to be cleansed from the earth. You know so the the strong can create this paradise on earth. You know it's it's a, a very divergent uh, approach to this whole idea of the overman, the uh, above the, the the constraints and above the you know the, the the weaknesses of the human being as it is now. And again, this this all really ties back to this uh, need to reinvent you know our concept of humanity because the industrial revolution was you know so threatening to everyone. So I mean, it, it's interesting how it, it takes you know a hundred years to really filter in to uh, the culture, and then we see you know basically this battle of the supermen in World War Two. Yeah, and yeah. it's interesting too because the superheroes are very much the mascots of the the American war effort. Um, they were very popular with GIs. Uh, comic books back then were 64 pages, and there were several stories, several different characters, and it was, it was basically magazines. And they would just roll them up and put them in their rucksack and take them, you know, and whenever they had some time, some downtime, they would, you know, read these stories and stuff. And, the, you know, very much part of the war effort. You saw all these covers where this, you know, this punching Hitler and that became this whole subgenre and, uh, you know, fighting the war, the Japan Nazis, this whole propaganda effort meant to boost American morale. And the ironical thing about this is that one of the most popular characters here is, is Captain America, who has the super soldier serum. Now, again, we're talking about these two divergent paths, and 
also these outgrowths from the kernel of the idea into pop culture or into politics or into these sort of mystical realms. But uh, Captain America has the super soldier serum. But at the same time, we have this fictional uh, treatment of this character. The Nazis are actually experimenting with this mix of methamphetamines and steroids with some of the SS uh, officers and soldiers where they're being given this sort of a real-life super soldier serum. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's funny because it's sort of this mirror image of each other. And again, I mean, this is how powerful these memes are. They can dismissed as pop culture and just sort of put aside, but they have a very powerful effect subliminally, subconsciously, but also consciously. And also, again, with these these rumors and and stories of uh, the SS sort of basing themselves on the, um, the real society. But at the same point in time, we know that that people like Hitler were very inspired by uh, Wagner and the ring cycle, uh, which is you know bringing back the old German heroes and Siegfried and, and all these characters and stuff. So it's, you know, this is mythology. This is a very, very potent thing. And I, I think it tends to be trivialized. It tends to be watered down. It tends to be dismissed. But it, it's a very powerful force in our culture. And again, getting back to Avatar, I mean, I think the fact that we see Avatar, which is after all, a superhero movie, uh, not necessarily what we might recognize as one, but that's exactly what it is. And it's going back to the very deep roots of superheroes. The fact that it's striking such an incredible chord with people, uh, you know, just really proves my point, you know, proves the point that I made in the book. And I'll tell you something, I took a lot of heat. You know, I got a lot of criticism from this book. I mean, there were a lot of people who really dug it, you know, people who really tuned into it. But there were a lot of people who sort of see themselves as the guardian of superhero uh, orthodoxy who attacked me for the book and it was it was really tough to deal with but i think over time you know the the ideas that i put forth in the book i think will be vindicated now that's interesting because uh i didn't know that i don't understand what kind of problem someone could have with the book that they didn't think that there was this occult you know esoteric underpinnings to comics exactly strange exactly well see the thing you've got to understand is that within sci-fi it's it's a very strange thing. Within sci-fi, within comics, they're so immersed in mythology, they're so immersed in all these strange ideas and stuff, but they all sort of tend to see themselves as like these hard-bitten, bitten, skeptical rationalists. You know, they all see themselves as, uh, you know, the reincarnations of Isaac Asimov and Carl Sagan and stuff, you know, yeah. that, that, that they are... They will spend all their time watching, you know, pure fantasy and pure sci-fi and pure mythology or reading it, but there's somehow, you know, that all this occult stuff, you know, where, where this sort of netherworld where fiction and facts start to intermingle, you know, that's just all, that's all craziness, that's all garbage and stuff. And it's also, you know, they are very, there's a, a large subset of fans that are very conditioned by orthodox history, but also their own sort of vision of of the characters. I mean, this is a very intimate medium. Uh, A lot of these people tend to sort of be loners and stuff, so they they have a very intimate relationship to these characters, and they don't want that impinged upon. And, And that's actually something that I can understand. I mean, I would 
you know, people who go out of their way to start attacking people they don't know because they disagree with their book or whatever on the internet. I mean, I've never understood that mentality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the same point in time, I kind of understand where it's coming from. It's coming from this need to control the narrative, you know? Yeah. To control how these characters are perceived by other people. And they feel threatened when somebody comes along with a different idea. You know, and I'll tell you the truth, I, I would uh, one day really like to do a vastly expanded version of this book because there's so much more. I mean, there's so much more in the original manuscript that got cut out by the editors, you know, because they wanted it to be very reader-friendly and very accessible. But there's so much more to this story, and that's one of the reasons I did the blog, is that there was just so much more that I wanted to put forward and, 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 and talk to people about and that's why in the earlier days of the blog, sort of the salad days, I was doing a lot more comic stuff. And I sort of, my interests have moved, you know, in radically different <laughs> directions. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, from time to time, I'll still do some comic book stuff. And I do a lot of stuff about Jack Kirby because that man was just a, a ridiculous force of nature. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That's a whole other topic. Yeah, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll get into him in a minute. Um, one story that's in the book that it didn't really get developed too much in the book, it's probably something that maybe was in the manuscript that ended up having to be trimmed down. That's the Magical Battle of Britain. Exactly, yeah. Um, exactly. I'd never heard of this story ever, and I've read uh, you know tons of stuff on Esoterica, so enlighten people to what this is all about, because it was really mind-blowing when I when I heard about it. Well, this is a fascinating story because this is World War II. A lot of these people who are involved in sort of the heyday of occultism around the turn of the century, they're, they're much older. Um, there's still sort of this, you know, occult world, demimond, but it's much quieter than it had been before. So these people, a lot of whom, you know, are well-known, people like Gerald Gardner, who was very, uh, you know, involved in the the development of Wicca. Um, he was involved in this. And then this uh, woman named Dion Fortune, who was not only a you know practicing theosophist and Rosicrucian, and uh, I think she was also a co-mason. You know, these people tended to join all these different groups. Yeah. Uh, she had been involved in the Golden Dawn. Um, she was also a, you know, a popular pulp writer. And she sort of was one of the I guess you would call a pioneers of the whole magical or occult detective, you know, that we mentioned before. And this is what we see today. We see Fringe in the X-Files. I mean, this is basically an outgrowth of the, the occult detective uh, mm -hmm. genre. And so she's uh, an instrumental figure in this whole genre. And she's also writing, you know, very mystically oriented fantasy stories. But these people all get together, you know, you know, Fairly marginal people. Uh, some some may be involved in the arts, but they decide that that they're going to follow the example of John Dee during the uh, war with Spain during the Elizabethan era, and they're going to protect Britain magically. They're going to cast spells that will repel the Nazis. They're going to repel the Nazis, you know, with magical means. And um, I'm not sure if there was anything quite as dramatic as the storm that destroyed the Spanish Armada, but you know, obviously the Germans did not conquer England, so I guess there was some success to this. So these people, you know, maybe it was delusional, but they would get together and have, I guess, these seances or rituals or whatever you would call it to cast this shell, this magical shell of protection over the island of Britain. 
that would repel the uh, the buzz bombs and all these sort of things. Wow. See. Yeah. yeah. So again, so this is this. You know, you're going from the occult into pop culture into politics, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of quasi politics. It's not necessarily electoral politics. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it, it's this part of this political struggle between England and Germany during the uh, the Second World War, and um, at the same time, there was a lot of um, sort of back and forth where I, I sort of connected to this was the whole Nostradamus Wars where uh, England would print up phony uh, Nostradamus prophecies and, and drop them in leaflets over Germany, you know, that Nostradamus had predicted Germany's doom and all this sort of thing. <laughs> you know, uh, they would print up phony astrological magazines um, because Hitler was really into astrology, so they would uh, print print up phony German uh, astrological magazines predicting his doom and everything like that. So it's you know, you don't get the sense that the people upstairs generally believe in all this stuff, but they understand that people, other people believe in it, so they're going to exploit that. They're going to exploit that as a weapon of war. And, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that the Magical Battle of Britain was part of that, but again, it's this mindset that when threatened by technology, mysticism you know, is your answer, that mysticism and the occult and magic and religion and spirituality will help you cope with these challenges. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, when you hear that story, it's just like, it sounds like a movie or a, a fictional thing, but this is true. I mean, these people were doing this. It's so weird. It would make a great movie, maybe a great Doctor Who, you know, great Doctor Who series, great Doctor Who storyline. I'd love to see somebody do something with this. It's not really well known. I don't even remember where I came across it. I think it was just in my general uh, research for the book, but I, I just thought, oh, I've got to put this in the book because this is just a great story. Oh, yeah. It's it's really strange. In the book, you mentioned that at one point, comics were outselling Saturday Evening Post and Life Magazine. And in our previous conversation, you sort of attribute this drop-off in popularity to the emergence of television. Absolutely. There's no question about it. Television killed everything. Television. <laughs> no, it's seriously. No, I mean, no, television I, I, did such damage to um, comic books, to magazine publishing. People don't even remember this, but Hollywood was really down on its knees uh, for a very long time because of television. Um, you know, they, they, this is when we start to see the emergence of, like, Cinemascope and Technicolor and 3D and just all these sort of gimmicks and all these sort of things to sort of take back the audience from television. But television was just killing everybody. And it just did a, a number on comics. It just sucked the life out of them. In the 50s, the comic book industry was really on its knees. And I guess what I'm wondering is, like, it seems like nowadays, you know, comics, they're sort of getting, like, more respectability now in the last decade or so. But uh, when I was growing up and everything, it, they were always sort of too compared, I guess, in a way to the UFO issue and UFO phenomenon. Like, comics have been hampered by the giggle factor for, you know, when I was a kid, at least as long as I could remember. Was it always that way, or or were comics considered, you know, an okay thing for people to read back then, and then at some point it fell off into the periphery? Do you know what I mean? Well, you know, you got to separate, because comics being both the, the comic strips in the newspaper and the comic books. I mean, comic books were always seen as junk, were always seen as just Okay. Disposable fiction. I mean, really, until the Marvel era of the 60s, you know, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko. I mean, he's, uh, Stan Lee, is, to me, is one of my gods. I mean, this guy was just such a great writer, such a great salesman, such a great storyteller. I mean, just a, 
a guy who could really just put this medium on a better footing than it had been. Uh, and this is when we start to see a lot of college kids and, you know, the whole psychedelic hippie crossover. I mean, the, the comics had a huge influence on the hippie movement and on the psychedelic movement. But then there's this huge drop-off. And you, when you talk about the Giggle Factor, I mean, one of the things that really brought the Giggle Factor back in spades was the Batman TV show, which just made everything ridiculous. And then sort of the Wonder Woman TV show sort of had that same campy vibe. But then, of course, it had Linda Carter in a yeah. bikini. So, I mean, like, how how bad could it be? Exactly. But anyhow, um, no, I think that comics, you know, the, the turnaround really came in the mid-'80s with Watchmen and The Dark Knight and all these sort of things where, you know, and it's funny because people go, mid-'80s, Watchmen, Dark Knight, those movies came out last year. No, I mean, this, <laughs> the, the, the comic books that they were based on came out in the mid-'80s. Um, that's really when, you know, comics became more literate and there was just this uh, much more concerted effort to make this stuff literature when it really had just been junk. But I'll tell you something. I mean, you know, back in the 70s, um, I mean, I'll go back and read a lot of those comics and think they're ridiculous. But, you know, to a kid, I mean, it was like, this was like, this is what adults should read, you know, because, yeah. you know, it's like all the great, hey, you know, you, know, you don't care about alien races and superpowers and cosmic telepathy and all this kind of crap, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, again, so it's going to be uh, almost self-defeating, but um, uh, I would say that the GIs were really big into them, but again, don't don't forget the GIs were would be a lot of kids too, right? You yeah. Know, 18, a lot of 17-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, but no, I mean, for most of its existence, the comic book industry has just been seen as a, you know, throwaway junk medium Got until it. more recently. It's interesting that it took like 20 years for those movies to get made. It makes you wonder like what, I guess if you look back into the last 10 years or something, then you'll get an idea of what the next few movies will be eventually. Not so much. I mean, don't forget that, you know, Alan Moore wrote Watchmen and that movie took forever to get made. I think a lot of it has to do with computer graphics that comic books just did not translate well onto screen because the capacity for convincing effects just wasn't there. I mean, that's really been the big changeover is the computer. And it's funny, too, because the computer really goes back to the Industrial Revolution. Charles Babbage, the difference engine, you know, computer technology sort of starts at the same time that all this other stuff we're talking about starts. But, um, you know, using punch cards and things like this. So not a lot of people realize this, that computers really got their start in the 19th century. Yeah. Anyhow, and then again, you know, bringing it back up to the World War II era, you know, that's when computer technology really takes off at the, you know, the same times that the superheroes are flying all over Europe and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But anyhow, um, Alan Moore, who wrote Watchmen, I mean, he had uh, Viva Vendetta, he had Constantine, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I mean, he's disavowed any involvement in all these films. He, you know, he he actually, I think he's put. He, he is actually a practicing ritual magician, and he's put curses on some of these things. <laughs> but um, And then Frank Miller, I mean, 20 years ago he did, um, well, actually 25 years ago now, it's crazy, uh, he did The Dark Knight, but then also he's done Sin City, and he, well, we won't talk about the spirit, but, you know, 300 came out in 1998. So it, I guess it all sort of depends you know, on, on what they think will work at a certain point in time. But, uh, yeah, I don't think we're going to be waiting 20, 20 years any longer. Well, now that the technology has improved, I think it's time for another run at Howard the Duck, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't hold my breath. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Now, 
to bring it into sort of a meta level with the comics industry, let's talk a little bit about the comics code because I found yeah. that to be really interesting and intriguing and something that you just don't hear too much about nowadays. Although I think somebody wrote a book about the comics code uh, in the last few years. So Yes, yeah, that's right. Um, what had happened is that after the war, there was this huge drop-off in sales. And then, of course, the early 50s, people start to get TVs and comic books are just getting battered. So what happened is that there was a deluge of, of horror comics and crime comics that were really explicit. I mean, a lot of the movies, the slasher movies that we saw in the 80s were inspired by these comic books. And the great example of this is Creepshow because Creepshow was done in that whole comic book format. Mm -hmm. um, but this, you know, you had this rash of comics that were just, you know, really sexually suggestive. Uh, there was a lot of sadism. I mean, it was just a lot of carnage, you know. I mean, this wasn't the, the thrust of the medium, but there were a lot of sort of publishers that were getting involved in just putting things in the comic books that were not appropriate for children at all. And the problem with that is, is that they weren't being marketed towards adults as they probably should have been. They were still being marketed towards children. And there was just this huge controversy about this. And a guy named Frederick Wortham writes this book called Seduction of the Innocent. And he becomes a big scapegoat later on for comic books, but, you know, in the comic book sort of orthodox world. But he's really got a lot of very salient points that uh, a lot of these publishers are exploiting their audience and just sort of deluging their brains with really inappropriate material. Yeah. And so this, um, we see comic book burnings. Uh, comic books are just... the Retailers won't even put them on the shelves, and this all leads to Senate hearings with a guy named uh, Estes Kefauver, who had been at one time been a sort of a front runner for the presidency, and he sort of holds this, you know, big hearings, sort of like the uh, PMRC hearings in the 80s, very similar sort of uh, atmosphere, and people like uh, Wortham testify, and some of the comic book publishers. Uh, show up, but they're all getting battered because what the uh, people like Wortham and, and uh, Kefauver are doing is that they just sh holding up these giant blow-ups of some of this imagery to the <laughs> TV cameras, and it was just it was a bloodbath. So overnight, I mean, it, the, the in industry is decimated. Now the Comics Code itself was a it was basically a, not necessarily a rating system, but it was basically a do or die thing. Very strict laws, very strict bylines came in that if you did not obey, you would not get the comics code of approval, this little stamp on the upper right-hand corner of the comic. And most you know, retailers, if they didn't see that, they wouldn't stock the comics at all. So you know, if you didn't have this, if you didn't you know, live up to the code, you would not even get on the shelves. So the interesting thing about what the response to this is that these laws are so stringent, you know, you can't uh, use horror in a title, you can't have vampires, you can't have werewolves, you can't have zombies, um, you can't show people being shot with guns or stabbed or any of these kind of things. I mean, it's just very, very strict laws. So what a lot of publishers start to do is that they turn to science fiction and they turn to aliens and UFOs and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you have this whole explosion of... UFO, sci-fi, 
stories and comics. Not only that, but this stuff is weird. These stories are crazy because these guys are driven nuts by you know not only how little money they were making in this business, but by how stringent these bylines were. So all of a sudden, there's almost this sort of psychedelic emanation coming from this. You know, the stress is creating almost like the shamanistic mindset <laughs> in these guys, and they're putting out some really bizarre completely off the wall stuff. Now, what happens is that this in turn leads to this, the revival of the superheroes. But the superheroes are no longer based in magic or, you know, these sort of leftover theosophical ideas. All of a sudden they're aliens or they're given powers by aliens, uh, you know, sort of taking the whole Superman idea and just running with it. I mean, Superman is just completely uh, left in the dust you know, you have characters. Um, Hawkman is really the the perfect example of this because in his original incarnation, this is coming from sort of this Masonic magical tradition where he's this reincarnated Egyptian prince, and you know he has this wicked priest that puts him into this deep sleep, and then he's woken up and all this kind of stuff. And it's all based in these very mystical sort of occult ideas. But when he's revived, when he's revived in the late 50s, all of a sudden he's an alien. He's And, and not only is he an alien, but later on we learn in the uh, the Justice League cartoon that he's ac- actually an ancient astronaut. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, and then and the Green Lantern is another great uh, example of this, because he started off that he had this magical ring and this magical lantern and, you know, it came from China. You know, all these ideas, again... This whole orientation idea that the, that the magic is all in the East, in the Orient, in Asia. But then when he comes back, he sort of meets uh, an alien. And it, the funny thing is is that it's very much uh, Aladdin and his lamp because he meets an, a dying alien who's very much like a genie and gives the character Hal Jordan his, his, his ring, his magical ring, and his lantern. I mean, the, the explanation is sci-fi. But it's, it, in essence, it's still magic because there are, there are no real rules to this. Yeah. But but it's it's this sort of is going to set the stage for the next big wave of superheroes in the '60s, and they're going to come, you know, atomic power, uh, aliens. I mean, all these sort of things that we saw in movies and stuff uh, are all going to start to recycle into the superheroes again. Interesting. Okay. Now, one thing I, I thought was uh, interesting in the in the book was this whole concept of the golem and how the golems are so prevalent in comics. And uh, I couldn't even do justice to the, the, to define golem. So I'll just turn that over to you. So I guess tell people what, what a golem is and then how it found its way into comics in such a pervasive way. Well, the golem comes from Jewish mysticism. It comes from the Kabbalah. It sort of comes from these folk legends from the middle ages. And the story has it there's this rabbi in Prague. And Prague, during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and this whole era, is a huge uh, center for Rosicrucianism and alchemy and all these sort of studies, you know, late Middle Ages, that era, up until really the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. You know, that this is where the whole idea of Bohemian comes from. And this is all about counterculture. It's a counter cult, you know, a, a different religion, basically. 
So the golem is this character who's created out of clay. It's an artificial human being that's created out of clay and animated with this uh, gematria spell that's carved into his forehead. And he protects the Jewish community from pogroms and all these sort of things. But then he begins to turn on the community itself, and then he needs to be, you know, another spell has to be cast to uh, bring him back to clay, a state of clay. Now, this whole idea of the Gollum comes into comic books as the Avenger character. Uh, Batman is the perfect example. There's a, a character who, who behaves uh, out of a sense of revenge. But also, much before that happens, I mean, the, some of the early robot stories, Artificial Man, Frankenstein is a, is, is a Gollum. You know, um, this whole idea of artificial life. So there are really two aspects to this this archetype. There's the a aspect of artificial life, but there's also the aspect of, you know, the Avenger, the hero. Um, Will Eisner, who created the spirit, who which was recently desecrated by Frank Miller in the uh, the film, <laughs> you know, he said, he said, he said, all right, he said, all superheroes are golems. He said, it's all based in the golem. I mean, I would sort of disagree with that because... I think the archetypes are a little more subtle, but you know I can sort of see the idea that it's all based in this artificial avenger that's brought to life through mysticism and magic and all these sort of things. Later on, more recently, we see the Gollum idea in a comic called The Swamp Thing, which is actually a TV show, a cartoon, and two feature films that I don't think anybody's ever seen any of them at this point in time. But, you know, this is a very comic, uh, popular comic character in the 70s and 80s, uh, this, this character, the Swamp Thing, essentially a golem. And then Marvel had their own version, which is called uh, the Man Thing, which is a great name. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the whole point of this is that so many of the, the more popular characters during the 80s were golems. I mean, they were like violent. The Punisher is a great example of this. Wolverine's a great example of this. Uh, there's a character called Vigilante. You know, there's this whole grim and gritty sort of superhero movement in the 80s. And I think a lot of the impetus behind this, and I, what I wrote about in the book, is that in the 80s, um, you had a very strong inner city urban readership for comics. And these were the same kids that, you know, were also having to deal with the crack epidemic and the gun epidemic and just this incredible explosion in, in urban violence that we saw. And I think that's what really was driving the popularity of these, these Avenger characters, these Gollum characters uh, in, in that period of time. And that's what we're seeing the, these emanations from, again, the Dark Knight, which is up until Avatar, right, was the second highest grossing American film, you know, after the Titanic. So it just shows you how powerful these, these archetypes are. This isn't just about comic books. When you can take an idea, you know, The Dark Knight, which in its original comic book incarnation, you know, much different than the film, but in some ways related, is a golem. And then this becomes such a hugely popular film and it just shows you that these these are very very deep psychological currents that are being steered up by these uh these archetypes absolutely yeah yeah I mean, this is powerful stuff I and mean, that's what people need to realize is that there's this tendency and this sort of comes from that high culture low cultural split that we sort of saw you know throughout the 20th century postmodernism things like that but you know we're sort of getting past that now and people are really starting to understand how powerful these memes are. 
And it's interesting because I just read, uh, read the book um, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. I don't know if people have read that book, but it was about that whole generation in the 70s that revived Hollywood, you know, starting with Bonnie and Clyde, Easy Rider, The Godfather. I mean, this whole string of great 70s movies done yeah. by people like Francis Ford Coppola and all these people. Um, but they, they say that it all comes to a crashing, thudding end with Star Wars. And for most people, like the great golden age of Hollywood pictures, that's where it starts, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's with Star Wars because that's when the mythic era starts all over again. I mean, I would argue that The Godfather is very much mythology. And interestingly enough, Mario Puzo, who wrote The Godfather, used to work for Marvel Comics. So there's a funny little connection there. But, um, you know, this whole idea that, you know, we want to see larger-than-life stories now because we're so incredibly hemmed in, we're so, you know, frustrated and controlled and impoverished and all these sort of things. I mean, this is exactly what we saw during the Depression. It's the, the same archetypes re-emerging, you know, for better or worse. It's fascinating to see, you know, life imitating art or art imitating life, I guess you'd say, something like that. Yeah, um, definitely. Oh, customers, how I hate them. Excuse me, I just heard that before Spider-Man was a movie, it was a comic book. Is that possible? What the... <laughs> Suffering Steve Ditko! How can you not know that Spider-Man first appeared in 1962's classic Amazing Fantasy number 15? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Ooh, 12 cents. I'll take eight. What's it, you idiot? Mint condition copies are like $40,000 each. Must lie down on pile of unsold Hulk hands. Hulk smash. Hulk smash. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the guy who created Wonder Woman. we got to make sure we uh, have that here in the interview because it, it was really so bizarre and such an interesting character. And I've never heard the story behind Wonder Woman. And when I heard it, I was like, this is just strange. This is as strange as, uh, as Wonder Woman herself. So yes. <laughs> uh, talk about this guy. Okay, Wonder Woman is created by this uh, pop psychologist named William Moulton Marston. Sort of the Dr. Phil of his time, but with a lot of twists, I guess you would say. <laughs> but anyway, this guy is, he writes for Saturday Evening Post and Look and all these colliers. And he's, he writes pop psychology. You know, people like Dr. Joyce Brothers or more modern versions of Dr. Phil again. He starts to get interested in the comic books. Uh, first, he starts off sort of being critical of them. But then he starts to see, he's got these very interesting ideas, sort of uh, radical feminist ideas. You know, this whole eccentric generation of uh, of American mavericks. And, and he's really part of that. You know, they, these people sort of died off after the war. But, you know, before the war, there's, things were just wide open and people had all these crazy ideas, these idealistic, uh, utopian ideas. And this guy's one of them. But he's also a bigamist. Uh, he has two wives. And two families, I mean, two sets of kids from, from from the different women. And they all sort of live together in this this happy household. But uh, not only is he a pop psychologist and a bigamist, but he's also a bondage enthusiast. Writes a lot about bondage, you know, and, and how how healthy it is and it's good for people. <laughs> wow. Strange ideas. But, the you know, these guys are geniuses. I mean, there's this whole era of just, geniuses um they're all very eccentric but 
you know, we're such, we're so the poor, you know, when you look at America and just its incredible decline, a lot of it just has to do with that we don't tolerate eccentricity anymore and we don't tolerate the maverick anymore. Everything's so corporatized. Everything is so systematized. You know, you wouldn't have a William Moulton Marston again. But he also, the thing I wanted to raise here is that he also invented the lie detector, the polygraph. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, he, um, and he got the idea from his wife because his wife was also a, uh, practicing uh, psychologist, and she had sort of observed how uh, when people lie, they, their blood pressure rises, they, you know, start to exhibit, you know, a certain set of symptoms that could be measured with the polygraph test. Now, wasn't, like, Wonder Woman's weapon some kind of truth rope or something? Yeah, well, that he incorporates these ideas. I mean, the Wonder Woman's based on his other wife, a woman named Olive Byrne, and she sort of wore, you know, all this crazy costume jewelry and stuff. But, you know, that uh, idea of the um, lie detector, you know, is, the, is you know, her lasso that, you know, whoever she sort of snares with her lasso has to tell her the truth and stuff. And there's a lot of bondage in, in early Wonder Woman stories, um, so much so that there was another psychologist working for DC Comics at the time. It had a different name, but, you know, essentially DC Comics who quit. And she said, you know, outright pornography would be more wholesome than these stories. <laughs> you know what these stories. And again, when we saw Wortham, uh, this character Frederick Wortham, in the whole crackdown in comics in the 50s, I mean, he really sort of singled out that Wonder Woman was this lesbian, and, and she was sort of indoctrinating people into lesbianism. Girls, obviously, girls into lesbianism. I mean, I think that was a little, little extreme, you know, <laughs> but. Again, I mean, this is a, a very eccentric character. You know, they, these guys sort of saw themselves, you know, they were going to be the next Einstein, I guess, for whatever field they had chosen. But he put a, lot, a whole lot of, like, really explicit Greco-Roman mythology into these stories. Um, gods like Aphrodite and Ares were regular characters, and the Amazons and Hippolyta. I mean, you had this whole constellation of, of mythology and mythological characters and this stuff. So it's this really, I mean, it's a really potent, really potent mix. You know, you have sort of this information and ideas coming from this this whole polyamorous bondage enthusiast bigamist. You know, I mean, it's like such a crazy blend, but, you know, it creates this great character that just continues to roll on, I guess. Yeah. Know? I'm surprised we haven't seen Wonder Woman in this explosion of uh, movies of superheroes in the past like decade or two. So, Well, the problem is, is that, you know, your basic audience for superhero movies are going to be young males. This has always been the problem with Wonder Woman. I mean, Wonder Woman, to me, always works best. I mean, I really, I love the um, the cartoon they made. The Wonder Woman, the cartoon yeah. uh, animated feature, and I actually did some interviews for the uh, documentaries on that. But um, I think she's a character that young men would probably accept more if she's in a team setting or maybe even like a, a duo, you know, her and Superman. I mean, that's just the problem. I mean, strong action female heroes are generally not accepted by male audiences, and male audiences really drive you know, the the big budget popcorn films these days. Yeah. You would you say that's the same case then for comics too, that the strong, powerful women mostly you just find them in teams and stuff like that now? Generally, yeah. I mean I think you know, I mean, there are female lead characters, but they generally don't do well in the marketplace. 
but um you know Wonder Woman is a really prominent character in the Justice League cartoons and and you know I thought the way she was handled in that was fantastic and that sort of you know makes male audiences I guess more comfortable with it yeah and generally you know girls I mean are not generally interested in in action stories they're not interested in that kind of storytelling so it's it Wonder Woman is always sort of fallen you know between the two poles I guess now even back in the 40s, the predominant audience for Wonder Woman was boys. I mean, she was a very popular character, but the majority of her audience was still boys. And there was a lot of concern that they were, you know, this was sort of titillating that this you had this scantily clad uh, female character who, you know, liked to tie men up and stuff. You know, this, <laughs> just all this crazy stuff back then. I mean, when you look at it now... It doesn't seem like all that big a deal, but, you know, you have to sort of take the time machine back to how people's ideas about pop culture were just so much different oh, than yeah. they are today. Yeah, they couldn't even, like, show toilets on TV and stuff back when it first came out, so, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, you, plus you had the whole Hayes Commission where, you know, you couldn't show two people in bed and, all you know, all this, like, really strict and... You know, basically, it's all leftover Puritanism, you know? It's, it's, yeah. it's this vestige of the, the Puritanical ideal. And this is a totally different tangent, but one of the reasons why European film was so popular in the 50s and 60s and then sort of died down in the 70s was because, you know, the Europeans were much more liberated and there would be, like, nudity and more sexually explicit or sexually provocative material in the, in the films, and that's what really sort of was driving the popularity. And ironically, the same thing sort of happened in comics, that you had in the uh, 70s, uh, there was this magazine called Heavy Metal, and Heavy Metal was reprinting all the, uh, the great sci-fi stuff, mostly from France, predominantly from France, but, you know, there's a much higher level of, of explicit sex and violence and drugs and just all the stuff that the comics code you know, wouldn't let American uh, publishers put in their books. And as the American audience, comic audience sort of caught up to that, you know, heavy metal became, you know, less of an important force. But when I was a kid, every newsstand you'd go to would have a heavy metal th uh, comic because that was, you know, when you graduated from reading Superman or Spider-Man or whatever, that's what you would read. You know, the, you know, it's, robots with boobs and stuff <laughs> nice yeah I'm all about the robots with boobs speaking of which i love the drawings in the book i gotta put over your artist here uh joseph michael lisner some titillating images in there for sure some of those ladies Ooh. yeah joe really knows how to draw the female form quite, for sure. quite well yeah he's a he's a very fine connoisseur of uh female pulchritude <laughs> i know i know i have to watch myself i might end up down the rabbit hole and it's just kind of manja world <laughs> now we kind of talked about superman and wonder woman and everything and batman what about spider-man is he is there is there more to him than meets the eye well spider-man is you know the selling point with spider-man is that he's a teenager he's like a nerd He's picked on, and he's sort of granted magical powers by the you know the magic of radiation. I think that's what his appeal in the '60s was. The audience was starting to become more self-aware. The comics audience was starting to become a little older. You were starting to have more organized fandom, and I think that Spider-Man really tapped into that. That he's you know uh, 
one of the selling points with Spider-Man is he was the character that could be you. Yeah. You know, the, the, the publishers are starting to become aware that their audience, the, the core of the audience is sort of these nerdy boys, teenage boys that are really hooked into these power fantasies. And that's where you start to see, you know, characters like Spider-Man and the Legion of Superheroes, that they're starting to cater more to the psychology of the audience. And I think that's, the you know, the big secret behind Spider-Man's success. Um, the original artist who drew him, Steve Ditko, portrayed him as being very nerdy, very skinny. And even when he's in his costume, he's very skinny and spindly and, and insect-like. The artist who took over after him, uh, John Romita, drew him more uh, handsome, more idealized. Because of that, the, the, the title becomes more popular, you know, because it's just more pleasant eye candy. But that's, I think, the, thing, the, uh, the secret behind Spider-Man's success is that he's really the first character that sort of plugs into uh, the audience. Yeah. Now, one of the guys I wanted to ask you about here that plays a obviously huge role in the history of comics and to a comics outsider like me is seen kind of like the, the Garfunkel to Stan Lee's Simon because everybody knows who Stan Lee is, but the guy I'm talking about, Jack Kirby, is sort of like the second banana, at least in the popular, you know, mystique way. You know what I mean? It's like everybody knows who Stan Lee is, but only serious comic people and then some other people who are a little more hooked into the scene know who Jack Kirby is. He doesn't have that uh, mainstream resonance. And I guess I wanted to ask you about him, tell us a little bit about him, and one, one aspect of Jack Kirby that sort of came up a lot in the book, but I didn't uh, I might have missed it or I didn't quite get was um, that you mentioned that he had a lot of rage, which I thought was, you know, intriguing because uh, I wasn't sure wh where that rage had come from. So talk about well, Jack Kirby. I'll, I'll tell you exactly where it came from. And Jack Kirby grew up poor on the Lower East Side. You know, this is back in the days when it was a, 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 just an out-and-out -out slum and people were living cheek by jowl. And he said that when he was a kid, you know, a vacation was a night out on the uh, fire escape and that he would have to fight every day back and forth to school. And, you know, his parents lived in poverty, and there was a tremendous amount of violence and social dysfunction that he grew up within. Um, learned how to draw, um, you know, was a prodigious artist, started working very early, starts working in the comics, uh, the comic books as soon as they really start to blossom in the late 30s. And then creates, uh, co-creates Captain America, which becomes a huge character, but also attracts the unwelcome attention of a lot of uh, Nazi sympathizers. Uh, there was a, actually a very large community of, uh, of Germans still in, in New York City uh, who were very enthusiastic about Hitler. There was the German-American Bund, and they would have these sort of big bonfire meetings out on Long Island and upstate New York. And... Um, threatened Jack Kirby and his partner Joe Simon over the character of Captain America who was uh, fighting the Nazis, and this is even before World War II. But despite his success, he is drafted. He is drafted into the Army. Not only is he drafted in the Army, but he's put right on the front lines. Oh, wow. Not only is he put right on the front lines, but when they find out that he can draw, he's assigned to go behind enemy lines before an invasion and sort of draw what he sees and sort of sketch out the lay of the land. I oh, mean, wow. I mean, he's basically a spy. You know, this is a reconnaissance, espionage sort of uh, yeah. 
role, and it was incredibly dangerous. I mean, he's fighting in Patton's army. Uh, he's right in the midst of it, and he's seeing some oh, gruesome, horrific violence uh, all around him. Uh, still fairly young at this point in time. I think he was probably maybe 25, and he's fighting this gruesome, horrific war. Well, most of his friends that he worked with all got deferments or, you know, his partner, Joe Simon, got a you know nice little gig with the Coast Guard on Long Island. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. so he, he, he felt cheated and he felt that he was thrown into a, a situation that maybe somebody who of his talent and his success did not deserve to be in. And that, I think, contributes to the rage. Um, and then he is fighting in Europe and contracts uh, very serious frostbite. His legs nearly need to be amputated, and he is sent home. And he spends a long time in convalescence. And then, you know, at that by the time he's recovered from all of this, the comic industry is really starting to wind down. He sort of struggles along for the later half of the 50s, uh, after a, a, some success in the early 50s with Joe Simon, uh, and then he partners up with Stan Lee, and Stan Lee is sort of this, uh, you know, they're doing titles that are just basically knockoffs of, of more popular titles, and they're doing a lot of monster books, they're doing a lot of Western books, but Stan and Jack just have this incredible synergy, they have this incredible simpatico, and when the Justice League becomes popular in the early 60s, their publisher says, superheroes are hot again, let's get on this bandwagon, let's get this thing going. And then these guys just pump out just one incredible character after another. I mean, uh, actually, uh, Spider-Man, the name Spider-Man came from a character that he and Joe Simon had been working on in the 50s called the Silver Spider. They, uh, Simon and Kirby come up with Fantastic Four, the Hulk, Thor. Iron Man. I mean, just one character after another. It's just like this incredible deluge of the X-Men. You know, one great classic character after another. But the, really the thing that is driving this in a lot of ways is not only Kirby's imagination, but this incredible rage, you know, this, this, this violence. He takes the level of violence and intensity to this almost uh, cosmic level in the stories. But at the same time, something very strange is going on inside his brain. He's starting to tap in. And I, I really can't figure out exactly how this happens, but he's starting to tap into some really deep, cosmic, psychedelic, you name it, shamanistic. He's going somewhere. He's going somewhere in his imagination. And his art becomes very strange, very stylized. I mean, it's, he remains very popular. But he, everything is just aliens and cosmic and, and just bizarro. And this sort of segues uh, into this obsession in the 70s with ancient astronauts. And this sort of defines his work from, from that point on. He starts off you know, really being obsessed with superheroes, and that leads to an obsession with the gods. You know, the, everything was the gods. Uh, this whole Nordic mythology that he's obsessed with, and this sort of carry on where the gods sort of are no longer magical figures. Uh, he creates this whole set of characters called the new gods, and they're aliens. They're interdimensional aliens, and they, they travel back and forth to Earth on what's called the boom tomb. It's a, a, a kind of stargate that they <laughs> they use to travel back and forth to this planet. 
So they're, they're in, interdimensional aliens that are fighting the secret war over the fate of the Earth. And from there, he goes into all these strange directions, but the, he goes back to Marvel, and he basically sort of revives the new gods, but this time he's going directly right straight into you know the Von Donneken stuff when he creates this book called The Eternals. And The Eternals is about these race of eternal you know beings created by these aliens called the Celestials. And the Celestials, you know, it's more of a intervention theory where they come down to Earth and they take proto-hominids and they re-engineer them to three different races. And the three different races are, are mankind, this demon reptilian race called the Deviants, and then the Eternals. And the Eternals are who, you know, early mankind models uh, the um, gods of ancient Greece and Rome and, you know, the Nordic yeah. countries, you name it. But the, Kirby is so obsessed with these ideas that he, then his next book he does is 2001 A Space Odyssey. And he's, uh, doesn't, isn't quite sure what to do with the book, but he just knows that he wants to explore this whole idea of, of the uh, the monolith, and you know he's writing these editorials where he's obviously in the books themselves in the 2001 books, where he's obviously taking this concept very seriously. I don't think he knows where he wants to go with it, but the ancient astronauts show up in uh, in other books that he's doing as well. So it's, this is obviously a very deep uh, current. But uh, so what we're seeing in his work is not only this rage, not only this anger, but a lot of ideas from conspiracy literature, from the occult, obviously from the Chariots of the Gods type literature. I mean, this guy is just so tuned into this. I mean, he's so tuned into this that he's creating work on his own, you know, for his own personal enjoyment that's rewriting the stories of the Bible as, as aliens. I mean, it's, he's just so <laughs> tuned into this concept. But he enters the shamanistic space, you know. I mean, it's the only way I can uh, describe it. And his work is extremely, you know, from the mid-60s on, his work just becomes extremely psychedelic. Uh, everything is alive. You know, outer space is this pulsating energy field. It's not like this void with, you know, like little white dots of stars. But the thing that I've been writing about on the blog a lot is that not only is he tapped into this very deep currents, archetypal and mimetic currents, but he also has this uncanny knack for predicting the future in his stories. Uh, 1959, he writes a story called The Face on Mars, which is about a giant uh, face, a stone face on the, on the, on the planet Mars. Uh, this is 17 years before the, the Viking missions. At the same time, he writes this story that's very much the Stargate sequence from 2001 A Space Odyssey, but the story is never published and is only published, actually, I'm sorry, it's published only in mid-1966 when Kubrick and Clark are already well into the production of their film. You know, they're probably even in post-production at that point in time. Yeah. So, I mean, he is tapped into the same currents that they're exploring, you know, traveling, becoming this being of light and traveling all through the galaxy. I mean, it's just a crazy story. But the things I've done on the blog is that this whole Gulf War scenario uh, he he has this character called Omac, and he's tied into this whole idea of the global government and constant surveillance. All these things that he was, I'm sure that he was reading in conspiracy literature, he starts to incorporate into, you know, into this comic book. But you know, people can see this on the blog if they just go to the uh, Secret Sun blog and click on the Jack Kirby link. 
very uncanny foreshadowings of Saddam Hussein and, and the Gulf War and smart bombs. He actually calls them smart bombs. It blows my mind. They didn't exist back then. He, he's actually anticipating that whole technology, which became the big selling point of the first Gulf War. Yeah. But at the same time, and this is where we're going to get a lot more esoteric, at the same time he's drawing this whole story that's predicting the Gulf War, he's got this story about this uh, alien that comes to Earth to collect all these ancient artifacts. And one of the places he's going to is Babylon, and he, he takes this uh, giant statue of Marduk. Now, this is very much tied into a lot of these theories that we hear from people like William Henry and people like Jordan Maxwell, that the, the real purpose of the Gulf War was to recover all these ancient texts from Sumeria and from Babylon, yeah. you know, that uh, having to do with the Anunnaki. Now, Kirby somehow is processing this stuff completely subconsciously 20 years or so before the fact, maybe even 30 years with, with the Omex stories in the second Gulf War. Very uncanny knack. And, and this is sort of what I sort of write about is this whole idea and what I'm really obsessed with is the whole idea that creativity is a form of shamanism and that it can have these emanations that go beyond uh, the limitations of space and time. Um, you know, we see a lot of this with sort of the remote viewing work that was done in the 70s. Uh, and actually what I had heard is that the, the face on Mars, the reason why they went to Sidonia, why they, uh, NASA sent the Viking probe to Sidonia is that they got information from remote viewers at SRI that, that there were giant artifacts, the pyramids and the, the face on Mars and stuff, at those coordinates. I mean, that may be completely apocryphal, but I think the fact that Jack Kirby was also processing this at the same time is, is pretty remarkable. Actually, not at the same time, correct myself, you know, several years before the fact. Yeah, yeah, like over you know, a decade. Yeah, you know, so it just shows, I mean, this is one of the things that I'm really obsessed with is just this whole idea of, of creativity as a form of shamanism. And uh, it's something that I really explore a lot on the blog, and Jack Kirby is one of my, you know, exhibit A's, so to speak. He sounds so unlike Stan Lee. Stan Lee sounds so happy-go-lucky and gregarious, it sounds well, like. Stan Lee had his, well, Stan Lee grew up poor, and Stan Lee worked extremely hard for a very long time. They, I think, in a lot of ways, were a perfect complement. There was light and shadow. You know, Stan Lee is the light, Kirby is the shadow. You know, they, they, they fit together really well because Stan Lee just had this beautiful knack with language and, and, and you know, these sort of philosophical ideas that we start to see put into these comics. I mean, I still love that stuff. I still will go back and read, you know, just for pleasure, his, his, his use of language, particularly in Doctor Strange and Thor. I mean, just this sort of pseudo-Shakespearean language that he used, just, just brilliant stuff. And these guys were so perfect together because their strengths really cohered and their weaknesses offset each other, you know, which Lennon and McCartney, I think, you know, you had said Simon and Garfunkel. I think Lennon and McCartney is probably a much better oh, yeah, um, yeah. allegory or metaphor for, you know, for that team. Yeah. Well, what I meant was like, you know, the mainstream perception is everybody knows who Stan Lee is, but Jack Kirby didn't have, at least as far as I know, or at least as far as I perceive, uh, never sort of reached that level of, of fame. But, you know, Stan Lee's still around, obviously, and Jack Kirby isn't. And with the explosion in media, it's only natural that Stan Lee sort of, uh, you know, became the face of the comic book industry. 
Yeah, well, I'll tell you something. Stan is is who he looks. You know, you, what you see is what you get. I had actually met him at a San Diego Comic Con a few years back, and I this is a guy in his early 80s and just is a bundle of energy and is just zipping along, and is just so happy and just so pumped. I mean, he he is for real. I mean, he's the genuine article. That's not a put on. That's not a show. And uh, it was just such a joy meeting him because uh, his, his 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 tagline back in the old you know in the Stan soapbox days was Excelsior. Yeah. You know, and actually when I saw him and I met him, I'm like, oh, you know, Stan, oh, you know, I'm such a huge fan. I just, you know, he's like, oh, that, 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 great, 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 great. And then he was walking off. I go, Stan, I go, Excelsior. And his face just like lit up like a Christmas tree. And he goes, Excelsior. <laughs> like, oh, it's like, that, that's the Stan Lee story that you want. You know, it's like, that's the Stan Lee story that you want to tell people for the rest of your life. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, he's just like, oh, you should have seen his face. And he's just like, Excelsior. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome! Oh my, oh my god! Did you ever see the show that he had there? Uh, yeah. Who well, wants to be a superhero? Yeah, I mean, it's, isn't that a great example of of this whole process? You know, this whole process of it's not enough to to read these stories. Now we sort of have to become these archetypes. And this, I think, is what's going to lead us into virtual reality. This is what's going to lead us into um, posthumanism. I mean, there's a lot of permutations that we're going to start to see in this, but I think the most obvious with Avatar is virtual reality. I mean, Avatar really is the first real immersion into virtual reality that we've seen on screen. And I think that's, you know, another part. You know, it takes this very potent primal fantasy and then really puts you right in the middle of it. So, I mean, this is where I think we're going to start to see all of this go. So what you're trying to say is I should see Avatar already. Yeah, I mean, just so like you can talk about it to people, you know, just <laughs> like know, you know, it's like around the water cooler or whatever, you know. Yeah, as we as we get ready here to close the book on our gods wear spandex, uh, towards the end you talk about some of the big players in contemporary comics and and people who sort of changed the medium in big ways, and I think the most famous probably is Alan Moore, and and you make the point that he shifted the scene, I guess you could say, from uh, the power being in the hands of the artists to the power being in the hands of the writers, which I found to be really interesting because, like I said, I, I'm not a comic enthusiast, so I never even thought about that dynamic of, of writers versus artists and, and who really uh, you know holds the pen, pardon the pun. But uh, I found that to be pretty interesting that his ascension, I guess you could say, as a big player in the comics field sort of uh, changed the face of, of the power structure there uh, in, in the creative element. Yeah, I think a lot of that was by necessity because at the same time he starts to come into power, and this is in the mid to early 80s, this is also the same time we're starting to see video games. So a lot of the audience that had already been lost to television is starting to migrate to, to video games. So if you want to stay, you know, keep the reader's attention, you've got to do so. You've got to create something in comic books that people cannot get outside of comic books. And this is where the, the writers start to come in and raise the bar, you know, raise the, uh, up the ante in storytelling. Alan Moore's the first guy to sort of take off with this. He takes over this book called Swamp Thing that we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. And he makes this a very much uh, an adult horror fantasy title. 
Uh, actually, just a few issues into his run, DC takes the comics code off because they're just like, we're just going to let this guy run. And uh, stuff gets pretty explicit in the book. But after his success with Swamp Thing, I mean, he takes this title that nobody is reading except for me, I think, and turns it into a you know very successful, well-regarded title. Then he is given these characters that were bought from another company to do Watchmen. And he's so radical with these characters that they change the identities of, of these characters into something completely different. But this is where the Watchmen comes from. It, it actually started off with these defunct superheroes from this company called Charlton, who were really the sort of bottom drawer, uh, really junky company. DC, they had gone out of business, and DC had bought the rights to the superhero characters, and this is really the origin of Watchmen. But he takes this into such a different direction that it's, there's no point in it. And after his success with the Watchmen, um, his next big project is uh, Killing Joke, uh, which is a sort of rewrite of the Joker origin story. Um, actually, his didn't really have much of an origin story. It's sort of uh, a new wrinkle. And this is one of the comics that they give Heath, Heath Ledger, who had not read comics previously when he's preparing for his role as the Joker in The Dark Knight. At some point in time, Alan Moore has this uh, epiphany, uh, sort of this revelation that he goes from being your typical British uh, postmodern, cynical, nihilist, to being very, very deeply interested in uh, ritual magic and uh, occultism and, and all these sort of things, radical politics, uh, the whole gamut. And this completely changes his uh, storytelling. He then does this book called From Hell, and From Hell is sort of um, the Jack the Ripper story told through the Masonic conspiracy lens that Jack the Ripper was this Freemason who was casting this uh, spell all over London with these murders to ensure the uh, predominance of the, the male gender over the female. A lot of these sort of occult and esoteric ideas that we were talking about earlier from the 19th century start to filter into to, to Moore's work. And this uh, sort of inspires a whole host of, of similar British writers, uh, Grant Morrison is another one. Um, he His first big breakout success is a, is a book called Arkham Asylum that probably had a lot of influence on the Dark Knight movie as well. Uh, it's a Batman graphic novel. And also this uh, fellow named Neil Gaiman, who's, uh, this is an interesting character because his father was the head of uh, the Church of Scientology in England. And Neil Gaiman himself is not a Scientologist, but sort of had this very interesting upbringing and brought a lot of that into his work. Uh, his first really big, huge success is this book called The Sandman. And The Sandman sort of this gothic uh, fantasy phenomenon, really. I mean, that's the only way to put it. I'm surprised they haven't made that into a movie. I mean, maybe it might be unfilmable because it was very literary. But he is the guy who follows in the footsteps of, of Alan Moore and sort of up, ups the ante. Alan Moore comes back to comics later on in the 90s, uh, the sort of this middle period where he's keeping a low profile, doing some work for hire stuff, and then he sort of takes the superheroes back to their occult and pseudoscientific and pulp roots in this line of comics called America's Best Comics. 
And this is where uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen come from. Uh, that was a film, wasn't a very good film, wasn't a very successful film. Very successful comic, very good comic. Uh, very recommended to all your listeners. Uh, and a lot of kind of occult, esoteric, uh, conspiracy themes in that book. And the, the whole conceit of that is that it's the Justice League made up of all the old Victorian superstars, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and people like that. Yeah. So um, very much worth reading. But he again, this is this whole shift in focus where the writers are much more the driving force. And this in turn leads to, you know, this really unparalleled success in the bookstores. That the comics were, you know, this junky 7-Eleven medium and then becomes this uh, collected book, hardbound, squarebound, yeah. uh, graphic novel medium. And also very much you see a lot of this material in the libraries as well. So it's it's been uh, this incredible evolution, you know, within a short period of time. And, it, and really not long after the late 90s when comic books were being written off as, as finally dead. You know, they'd been written off as dead before, but this is, people were saying in the late 90s that this is it, this is the end. And ironically, that was one of my favorite periods in, in comics ever because, you know, when there, there's nothing left to lose, you know, that's when people really start getting creative. Yeah. Um, so, and in between, what happened in between was 9-11 and the Iraq War and just the general degradation of the American economy and uh, all the pressures and stresses that we're under now. And that Jeez, is, now you're going to make me depressed. Yeah, well, it is depressing. You know, It <laughs> certainly is. It's hard to avoid. But at the same point in time, it's also created this absolute boom in, in superhero storytelling. And I think that the superhero meme itself has mutated in so many different directions. Um, again, it was, we were talking about Avatar, and there's any any number of, of science fiction films that you could say are basically superhero films. I mean, certainly uh, Race to Witch Mountain was nothing like the uh, original stories. Those were alien superheroes. And of course, we're, we're no longer really seeing the occult and pseudoscientific and esoteric elements you know so strictly speaking esoteric elements now everything is very much about aliens and you know fringe science i guess the closest thing we have to um the the, the old vestiges of the occult superhero uh the vampires in twilight and true blood and all the other permutations where there's some magical or supernatural element to them uh, I strongly suspect that uh, at some some point in time that the vampires in uh, the Twilight books have some connection to uh, Mormon cosmology, which is itself very sci-fi oriented. That's that's one thing I had blogged about earlier is that the Mormon culture is mad for science fiction, and they produced uh, a number of. Uh, big sci-fi authors, not the least of which was Glenn Larson, who created the original Battlestar Galactica, which is going to be revived. Uh, a lot of people might not be familiar with this. We had the revival on sci-fi, which was sort of a, a reimagining of the concept, but 
I, I believe Brian Singer, who directed the first two X-Men films and also the Superman Returns movie, is very, very much a, a keen, old-school, OG, BSG <laughs> fan and wants to bring back the pure, you know, the old Starbuck and Apollo version of uh, Battlestar Galactica, which would be really fascinating to see because that is part of this whole revival of, of, of ancient astronaut theory in films that we're seeing, which I, I definitely believe is uh, a symptom of the decline of the religious right because the ancient astronaut material was really everywhere uh, in the 70s. And I think the rise of the religious right, I think there were a lot of things going on behind closed doors that put, put a lot of that to, uh, to ground. And for, you know, basically the past maybe even 20, 25 years, I guess, you know, we've seen that stuff be very underground. And now it's, uh, you know, with Indiana Jones and Battlestar Galactica and Stargate and all these sort of things, that, that, that all those concepts that were really everywhere in the 70s um, are back. And I think, again, I think a lot of that is politics. I think that a lot of that is, you know, this whole matrix of parapolitics that, that the real political decisions are not made by our elected representatives and uh, memes that are not seen as uh, culturally advantageous or suppressed yeah. in the media, things like that. Yeah. So it's very interesting that at the same time the, the mega churches and the religious right is starting to wane that the old uh, the ancient astronauts have poked their heads up against, you know, out of the sand and out of their little pyramids and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, that reminds me again, um, tying back to what I mentioned about Jack Kirby and the Eternals and his whole take on that. When those characters were revived uh, just a few years ago, Neil Gaiman, who we just discussed, was the uh, the driving force behind that. So that was uh, very exciting. Interesting. For me at least. All right, now before I wrap up the comic discussion, there's one thing I want to ask you about, and I meant to ask you about it originally when we had the first conversation. I'm taken aback, I guess, by what you said just now, because you said that you enjoyed this period of comics, but it sounded like you were kind of down on this certain era of uh, comics, and, and specifically this Rob Liefeld guy who I guess typified the, the scene yeah. at the time. He kind of, you know, you, you throw a few shots in a, <laughs> at, at him in the book. Uh, oh, I don't mean to pick on poor Rob. I mean, he was just, you know, it was uh, it was this madness. This is the early 90s I'm talking about. The okay. late 90s was sort of the post-crash. The crash, interestingly enough, sort of coincided with the death of Jack Kirby in 94. And then it was almost like this... Uh, Somebody had popped a balloon, and then you know the, the, this hyperinflated market uh, began to um, devolve and, and deflate. But you know, yeah, the early '90s. Um, oh boy, I really hated that stuff. Uh, I, I've taken. I, I think that's inspired some of my negative reviews on Amazon. That these kids who grew up reading that stuff got all upset that I I, I didn't love that stuff too. But uh, no, I mean that's uh, not well remembered by anybody these days, or, or very few people. And, and what, one of the things I talk about in the in the book is that there was this book called Kingdom Come, this really pivotal graphic novel uh, that DC published in the late 90s that was sort of very much a, an explicit repudiation of that whole era, that whole early 90s era, and really kicked off 
what I call, you know, the, the quasi-religious uh, superhero era that led to the incredible revival that we saw in the, in the, in the movies. Because these um, guys who did Kingdom Come, Alex Ross, uh, the, the plotter slash writer slash artist, and Mark Wade, who wrote the dialogue, really were very angry about what had been done to the superheroes, that the, the basically the currency of superheroes had been debased, and they wanted to return them to this this whole Olympian ideal that that these are gods, that these are our modern gods, that this is a genuine bona fide mythology and and must and must not be debased and uh, desacralized. And I think that so much of what we're seeing today, with the the popularity, particularly in the movies comes from that. I mean, when I watch a lot of these movies today, I just, I see even just the visuals uh, come from Kingdom Come. So yes, that period was not a very happy period for me. Uh, what was what was so bad about it? Like, I don't get, I, I, I know in the book you point out a lot of gimmicky stuff, like crazy covers and stuff that sounded like just sort of a, a money grab situation. But, but it was basically, it was basically that it, it was no longer about stories and plots and characters. It was about manipulating a collectibles market. Ah, okay. And, I mean, some of the stories were just, they weren't even stories. It was just, it was really maddening to see. Like the death of, course, of Superman there were a lot thing? Of, yeah, exactly. That's a perfect example. But, I mean, again, there were, I mean, a lot of people out there are going to be throwing darts at me, you know, because that was their favorite. That's the stuff that they were maybe kids and they grew up on, and it was really exciting because it was everywhere in the culture and stuff. So it's all a matter of perspective. I'm sure there are plenty of people who that's their favorite era. But at the same point in time, that hyperinflation and that go-go sort of mentality towards superheroes led to their near death. Uh, and that's not an exaggeration because it became just sort of what the parallel was what happened in the baseball card market. It was really just a, a lot of ways to... Uh, to rip kids off, you know, with gimmicky covers and constant rebooting titles, so you you can be publishing number one issues all the time. And, yeah, you know, it's just it was a whole host of things. Um, it was just a really bad period for me uh, as as a fan. That's why I really tuned into and and so much of our guards were spandex is about that book, Kingdom Come, and you know the driving force again. Behind that book, Alex Ross, I mean, his father was a minister, you know, so he had that, I guess, that same reverence that goes back to the earliest days of the modern superhero with Gladiator, who is also a uh, written by a minister's son from Beverly up in your neck of the woods. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad I asked you about that because I was confused by what, by, by your... Two different halves of the decade. Your rage can, against the early 90s. But yeah. don't we all have a little rage against the early 90s? I mean, come on. Well, we rage against the machine, right? That's for sure. Well, you know, the early early 90s are an interesting period because there were a lot of memes that were underground or countercultural or alternative that all of a sudden became mainstream. You know, uh, alternative rock, uh, ufology, you know, you had sightings, you had the X-Files... A lot of things that were previously marginal became mainstream entertainment. Yeah. And we saw the whole hipster thing and, you know, irony and Starbucks. You know, I mean, there's, I, I shudder to think of, 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 you know, the whole fake alternative irony kind of thing that went on back then. 
<laughs> but, you know, it, so again, a lot of people who were younger than, than I was at the, at the time, you know, I was in, I guess, my early to mid-20s, late-20s, I I gotta have a different perspective on it. So yeah. I don't wanna, I don't wanna harsh anybody's memories, but there was a lot of uh, cheapening of some ideas that had been around for a long time and, and then the, the people were sort of dumbing down so they could be sold more readily to a larger audience. Yeah, well. And, and, and look at, look what happened. I mean, at the same time that the comics sort of collapsed in the mid, 90s. I mean, the whole rock scene really, you know, in that post-Nirvana era, you know, we had this incredible backlash against that, where you had the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and and Sync and the Spice Girls. That all this fake authenticity was replaced just by simple fakeness. Well, you can't argue much the Spice Girls. I mean. I've tried. I've tried. I just can't. <laughs> All right, so we'll we'll close the book here on Our Gods Wear Spandex. Where can folks pick it up? Just about anywhere, pretty much, I yes, assume. Yes, anywhere. Absolutely. And, you and do... if uh, you can't find it in your local bookstore, just go to Amazon. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's on Amazon. and, and Or go... you can go directly to the publisher, Red Whale Wiser. You know, just just to if you do a search on our guards with spandex on you know whatever your favorite search engine is, you'll find plenty of places to buy it. Yeah, and it just came out about two years ago, so it's readily available, and people should uh, definitely pick it up. I enjoyed it quite a bit, and and this is coming from somebody who, you know, my comic experience is limited to maybe like a two year span of interest uh, when I was well, younger. So that's very gratifying to me. I definitely enjoyed it quite a bit, and and like I said, when when somebody wrote in asking for a comics guest I was like I don't know if I can do that and then I read your book and it was like I can do this this is cool so I hope folks check it out well again it's it's more about superheroes than comics per se yeah. and yeah. I think that most people today are familiar with the more popular superheroes you know they've seen the films or the cartoons so it is more of about the superheroes themselves and that whole archetype and those memes so I, again, I think that's going to have a, a much greater resonance today since these memes are so mainstream now. Absolutely. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks to Christopher Knowles for coming on the show. He'll be back, of course, next week for more discussion. This time around, talking about his blog, The Secret Sun. You can find out more from Christopher Knowles and... More about what we're going to be talking about next week at the website, www.secretsun.blogspot.com. Check it out. Tons of stuff there for you to read and investigate at The Secret Sun. Before I get to the listener email segment of the show, allow me a couple of in-house notes. Hopefully you'll be excited about one, if not both of them. For starters, things got a little haggled here if that's even a word, I'm not sure. But things got a little haggled on the transition from BOA 1.0 to 2.0. But we are back on track with that. And hopefully sometime in the next 48 hours or so, the entire BOA 2.0 overlay will have taken place. And Banal of America will have the whole new look that we've been teasing now for weeks and months. I apologize to all the people who have been waiting for us to make the transition. It's just been held up by some minor technical details and a lot of drama here in BOAHQ. 
not the least of which was the Coca-Cola incident and then a whole bunch of other stuff that we can't get into right now. So stay tuned to BanalOfAmerica.com for BOA 2.0 coming really, really soon, I promise. The other big thing that I want to tell you about, which will be coming at you in the next few days, is something that I was pondering doing for a while, and it kind of fell off the rails there, but at the last minute I decided to uh, pull the trigger and go ahead with this idea. So, coming at you this weekend is the first in what will be a probably 16-episode limited run of a BOA Audio spin-off series of sorts. So haphazard is this concept, this idea, that it doesn't even really have a name, so I'm just going to give you the gist of it right now. As the longtime BOA Audio listeners know, I am a huge, huge Lost fan. And the new season, the final season of Lost, kicked off this past Tuesday, February 2nd. So I wanted to do something kind of special here for the final season of Lost, and I happen to know that a lot of our listeners, as well as a lot of our former guests, are big Lost fans. So after the Lost premiere this past week, I had a few beers and decided, let's do this. Called up my friend Jeremy Vaney, who is a huge Lost fan as well, and We talked it over, he agreed to uh, join me here for this experiment, and we taped it the next day. A little, about 35-minute discussion on the season premiere of Lost, and we're going to do it again next week, and hopefully continue the run up until the season finale, which is airing at the end of May. We don't really even have a name for this thing, it's kind of flying by the seat of its pants at this point. It's, you know, a work in progress. But we had a lot of fun doing this little conversation. I'm looking forward to doing some more of it as we get settled in, maybe bringing in some guests and stuff like that, other esoteric names who are Lost fans, and maybe even some BOA Audio listeners or USV.com forum members who are Lost fans as well. We want to hear from all those folks. So we will be posting the BOA Audio Lost spinoff at Been All of America sometime this weekend, and uh, we'll alert you to it at the website. So stay tuned to BenAllOfAmerica.com for the BOA Audio Lost spinoff project title to be determined. <laughs> Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And we've got two emails here, so let's just get cooking on them. The first one comes from Someone by the name of F-I-L-J-R. I'm not sure exactly if that stands for something or or what the story is with that, but it's F-I-L-J-R, and here's what he has to say. I just wanted to thank you for your work. I always look forward to the beginning of another season of Banal of America. It's like being inundated with new possibilities and interpretations of life on this planet. I've been thinking back to your interview with William K. Zabel of the Columbine Conspiracy. I remember that on a subsequent show, you mentioned in the show notes that Mr. Zabel has disappeared and was no longer reachable. Did anything ever come of that? Did you ever find out what happened? It's all a big mystery. What's your take on Mr. Zabel and his work? I'd love to hear your opinion. Cheers. F-I-L-J-R. Thank you for writing in, Filger, or Phil Jr. F-I-L-J-R. Thank you for writing in. 
for starters, I'm always happy to tackle the William Zabel issue once again here at the end of the show. Nothing has changed, my friends. William Zabel is still missing in action. I'm going to give a shot at trying to get back in touch with him soon. It seems like it has been one of the most talked about aspects of BYU Audio Season 4 and the program in general. We get so many emails about William Zabel still, and especially now that he's missing in action. So I have no update on what's going on with William Zabel. I feel like I just talked about this recently, but here in 2010, I'll take another shot at getting in touch with William Zabel. What do I think about his work? I really enjoyed it. I really, really found his material to be pretty captivating stuff. He may have been the only guy looking at the Columbine conspiracy as their primary focus, and while some of it was a little convoluted, some of it was a little confusing as to what was going on in the school that day, some of it was some really mind-blowing stuff. That stuff about how the event may have taken place earlier the previous day and how it may have been one mass ritual killing. I mean, this stuff is wild, and it really uh, was tremendously entertaining for me and gave me a whole new look at the Columbine story. Do I believe it? I don't know. It's in my gray basket, folks. I keep a lot of this stuff in my gray basket. I don't ascribe belief to uh, many of these stories because something else could come along and change it overnight. But nonetheless, William Zabel still missing in action. His material, tremendous stuff. And I will update people if and when we hear from William Zabel here in 2010. Hopefully we can put this mystery to rest once and for all at some point in the future here on the program. Up next, we've got an email here from David in the UK. He's also a usofe.com message board member. Goes by the name of Ethel on there. Here's what David has to say. I'm ready to say how much I enjoy Banal of America, the podcast in particular, but also the much-vaunted and entertaining columns as well. BOA is, to coin your very own phrase, a part of my everyday search for esoteric news, and long may it continue to be so. I've just finished listening to your chat with Peter Robbins, and, as ever, I found him to be a hugely engaging and entertaining guest. I agree wholeheartedly with your assertion that Peter is one of the most undeservedly unsung heroes of ufology. The man has such an intriguing and wide-ranging background, in such a diverse range of disciplines, not least his grounding in the arts, and I consider myself a great fan of his work. Therefore, I was so pleased to hear that he is going to be a more regular fixture on the BOA Audio guest list at his own request, and look forward to hearing more of what he's up to in the field of strange aerial phenomena. Being a Brit, I have a particular interest in the Rendlesham Forest slash Bentwaters slash Woodbridge slash call it what you will UFO incident of 1980-81. I have read the deeply disturbing and compelling Left at Eastgate a few times now, on each occasion finding myself more in awe of the complexities and sheer madness of the case. That Peter and his co-author Larry Warren were able to come out of the whole experience with even a shred of their sanity intact is, I believe, testimony to their joint belief that the truth should be told, whether genuine alien encounter or government-sponsored psychological operation. Personally, I would find it fascinating, if indeed Peter is to become a more regular visitor to BOA Audio, to hear him in a double-headed interview with the aforementioned Mr. Warren. I understand, perhaps mistakenly, that Larry is somewhat reticent to talk about the subject nowadays, 
and has indeed settled down over here in Liverpool. But with the potential renewed interest in the case, it being the 30th anniversary of the strange incident this year, it would seem to be a fantastic opportunity to revisit this most baffling of UFO happenings. Anyway, just my two pence slash cents worth. As I say, I rate what you do very highly and hope that you'll continue with your quest to bring such a wide range of esoteric topics to light for your appreciative audience. With all best wishes, David, a.k.a. Ethel on the US of E forum. P.S. Nice to hear that the old steam-powered technology is restored following the Coca-Cola issue. There you go. Kind of a long one, but I enjoyed it. Big thanks to David for writing in. You know I love those international listeners, folks. I've talked to Peter Robbins since we posted the edition of BOA Audio, and he's definitely going to become a regular fixture here on the program. I'm thinking maybe something along the lines of quarterly visits to the show in a post-show format. We're going to start mixing some stuff in here at the end of the program, and Peter Robbins is definitely at the top of the list for those sorts of features. So stay tuned for more from Peter Robbins here on BOA Audio. I can't say for sure what the situation with Larry Warren is, but I'll definitely float the idea to Peter. I did hear that Larry was doing some presentations at some conferences last year, so I think he's starting to re-emerge in the UFO scene a little bit, and I'm hopeful that if that's the case, we can bring him on BOA Audio to discuss the Reynolds from Forest incident in detail with him. But I don't want to make any promises, so stay tuned, and if it happens, it happens, and know that I'm definitely going to make the effort to see if we can put it all together here on BOA Audio. There you go. Thanks for writing in, David. Thank you for writing in, F-I-L-J-R. Both awesome BOA Audio listeners with insights and inquiries into the program. What about you, my friend? You're listening here at the end of the show. Maybe you have something to say about or to BOA Audio. How do you do that? That's really very simple. You just go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. And you click the contact button on the home page. Pretty simple to find. It's all over the place. That'll bring you to the email options. Or if you're on the go and you really want to get in touch with us, simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. That'll put your email in my hands. And the final method is to join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Great group of folks there, and we always enjoy the presence of newcomers and newbies. There's no hazing going on at the US of E, so come on over to the forum. It's free. Join up and partake in some esoteric and pop culture discussions with the denizens of the US of E. Those are the three methods, contact button, email, and forum. Any of those, as well as Facebook, MySpace, and Twitter, will put your correspondence into my hands and into the pile for future editions of BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, of course, it is the thanks portion of the program. Allow me to run through the list of the outstanding, esteemed, and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. This past week at the website, here's what we've got for you. A text interview from Richard Thomas in his column Sci-Fi Worlds, talking with Nick Redfern, 
all about his book that came out this past fall, Sci-Fi Secrets. It's a pretty engaging text interview from Richard Thomas. You definitely want to check that out at VOA. Also, I want to throw a plug in here. Richard Thomas has penned a feature article for the latest edition of Paranormal Magazine, where he interviews Timothy Good, Nick Pope, and Nick Redfern all about the UK UFO scene. You can find out more about that at paranormalmagazine.co.uk. Pretty simple, all one word, paranormalmagazine.co.uk. Check that out and pick up the latest edition of Paranormal Magazine for a feature article by BOA's Richard Thomas. Following that, at Benall of America, we got the latest edition of Leslie's Gray Matters, titled, Besides the Point, Maybe a Larger Point. And in this, she looks at the propensity for people in ufology to dismiss seemingly innocuous events when very often they may have some relevance to the UFO enigma. So another deep edition of Leslie's Gray Matter is titled Beside the Point, Maybe a Larger Point. And I also want to throw a plug in here for Leslie's latest work. She has joined the team at UFO Mystic. Congratulations to Leslie Definitely one of the unsung heroes of online esoterica who is growing in popularity week after week, and I'm really thrilled for her to be taking this step and reaching an even wider audience out there. UFO Mystic, as many people know, home of Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop, and now Leslie Gunter. Congratulations, Leslie, on your new gig at UFO Mystic. After that, we posted Marla Pena's Shadow of the Shinigami titled Random Thoughts, and this time around she is pondering how in contemporary times it seems like the geniuses, the true people at the top of the game in arts, music, entertainment, all that stuff, have been supplanted by general mediocrity. It's uh, quite a thought-provoking piece from Marla Pena, and kind of makes you think about what's going on here in the world today. That's Random Thoughts from Marla Pena in her latest edition of Shadow of the Shinigami. And we're going to have an all-new Medusa's Ladder from Rochelle Hawks, posted very soon at Benall of America. I'll detail that at the end of next week's edition of the program, but chances are by the time you're listening to this, it will be available at BOA. We say it week in and week out, and we tell you all about their outstanding work the BOA staff contributing countless columns for the BOA readers. And as such, if you're only listening to Benall of America Audio and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're only getting half the story. As David said in the listener feedback, BenallofAmerica.com make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. You're listening to episode number 12 here so far in BOA Audio Season 5. Usually we take a break around this time, but I can assure you that we will be having episodes for you at least for the next three to four to six weeks here on the program. I'm trying to stretch things out as long as possible before I take my annual mid-season hiatus because, you know, the further I go before I take the hiatus, the further we are to closing the book on season five. Don't get disappointed, my friends. It's a long way off, but I'm trying to sort of wrangle the season back into a normal time frame. Last year, we wrapped things up in September. That does not work for me. So we're going to really try and push things to the limit here so we can 
wrap up the season at the end of July or so. Why am I telling you all this? Simply because I'm working like a dog, my friends, and the costs are piling up here for Banal of America as we proceed with Season 5. I haven't asked you for donations for a few weeks, but I think it's time that I turn to you once again and ask you to make a donation to Banal of America and BOA Audio. How do you do that? It's very easy, my friends. Simply go to Banal of America or the BOA Audio Archive page and click the PayPal button. They'll walk you through the process. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the program and the website up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, you already know that it's going to be Christopher Knowles talking about his groundbreaking and extremely popular blog, The Secret Sun. I can't do too much of a detailed preview for you because I haven't sat down to edit the interview yet, but I know that it is definitely a jam session style of conversation with Christopher Knowles talking about really the feeling that there's something in the air and the sort of stuff that he's picked up via his research through the Secret Sun. And as noted, it is really a jam session. He was cooking big time as we got into that, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think folks are going to enjoy it as well. As I said, the blog is wildly popular, so I'm sure people want to hear Christopher Knowles talking about the Secret Sun research that he's been doing for the past two years. And in addition to that, I'm going to dig into the original interview that we did and see if there's anything in there that we can pull out with regards to Our Gods Wear Spandex and the Secret Sun discussion. I know there's a lot of overlap of material, so I'm definitely not going to just put out the original interview for all you folks out there, but I might make some select cuts and put them in there on the show next week to add a little girth to the episode and include some material that fell through the cracks here on our second conversation. So stay tuned for that as well on the program next week. And on that note, we'll close the book on this week's edition of the program. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, again to Christopher Knowles for coming on the show and giving us an inordinate amount of time. And thanks to FILJR and David, who wrote in for BOA Audio listener feedback. And finally, most of all, huge thanks to all you great BOA Audio listeners. You are the fuel that drives the machine. If not for you, there would be no BOA Audio. We would have closed up shop a long time ago. It's your support that keeps us going week in and week out, and I thank you humbly for that. Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.